This is Write Your Own Story, Three Keys to Rise and Thrive in Life and Business. I'm your host, Rebecca Fleetwood-Hessian. Hi, I'm Rebecca Fleetwood-Hessian. I am the CEO of a company called WeThrive.Live, my keynote speaker and an executive coach. And you are tuning in to our Future of Work series here on the podcast. I am passionate about the shift that we are in as a society and I believe it's the greatest shift that we've been in since the shift from the agricultural age to the industrial age model of work, where the work construct has such a significant impact on society. And in 2020, we experienced a global shutdown, global trauma, which led us into years worth of reflection on what success really is and what we want our lives to be. And I believe that we're still in this bit of chaotic shift trying to decide what the right answer is. And what I'm seeing is a much needed and necessary shift to where our sense of worth and our sense of value doesn't come from our achievements and our work title but comes from us knowing us. And I believe that is the shift that we have needed for some time because the way that we were working was leading us straight to an epidemic of burnout. And while this time of chaotic shift is full of uncertainty and many leaders trying to figure out what is the answer, I wholeheartedly believe that the future belongs to those leaders who are willing to be creatives who are willing to create the future of work. And I want to be a part of that effort. And so this series is dedicated to interviewing people and asking them, what do you think the future of work could and should be? What problems should we solve? What ideas should we consider? And by doing this series, it will lead us into our own sense of reflection as leaders and as employees. And what do we want? How do we want work to feel? And As we make this shift, I believe as we change the work, we can change the world into a society that honors each of our uniqueness and honors the value that we bring into an organization. So if we can change the work, we can change the world because, you know, making money just ought to feel better. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Today we have a very special guest, as they all are unique down to their fingerprints. Sam Sivarajan is a gentleman that I met at a conference in Detroit, Michigan. A few months ago, we were both attending a community for keynote speakers to passionately take their message out into the world bigger, better. It's called Impact 11. And it just is another example of how we meet the people that we need in the most random ways. So we were both new to this community and just gathering awkwardly as you do when you don't know a lot of people in the room over some drinks and hors d'oeuvres one evening and struck up an amazing conversation and just committed then to continue to stay connected. And Sam reached out to me a month or so ago and said, hey, I'd like to take you up on your offer to help me. 
identify my unique gifts and talents through a process that I use. And so we've done that work and it was just beautiful to get to know him and his story. And when I announced that I was doing this podcast on the future of work, I knew that he was the perfect guest to invite on the show because Sam has a rich wealth of experience that he's going to tell you about in a corporate sense with all the metrics of success that we have been shown and scripted to achieve. And he is now in this space of pausing that corporate life and asking himself, what do I want to do next? And that's one reason I wanted to have him on the show. But the other reason is one of his gifts and talents is to disrupt things that people have grown to accept as the right way or the normal way. And as we're talking about the future of work, there's no better person to talk to than someone that has the gift to see things differently. So I can't wait for you to hear from Sam. Here we go. Oh my gosh, it's so good to catch up with you. I so have enjoyed our conversations in the past. So I was looking forward to this. I loved your email to set some context. It appears that there has been much progress made in terms of the clarity of how you're spending your time these days. Just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and experience. You have a wealth of global experience in various industries, and you I, I wanted you to come on the show, one, you're an amazing human, but you also have this gift and this bias of seeing things differently. And you've been able to apply that in industries that have been very much industries that have had a certain way that they've always done things. And you've been able to come in and disrupt that in a beautiful way. So I knew that you would be a great one to talk about the future of work. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background and experience so they have context for your thoughts today. Sure. Yeah. So I actually trained as a lawyer, believe it or not. I was a corporate <laughs> lawyer working for a large firm in Toronto. I, I did a law and an MBA. And in the process, I also met an exchange student who later became my wife. Uh, <laughs> and so after working corporate law for a couple of years, she got a job opportunity to go to London, England, and we decided to go. And I switched from corporate law into investment banking. So I did mergers and acquisitions for telecoms companies. You know, this is before, during, and after the, the tech boom and bust. So I got to work with some of the largest global telecom firms and technology firms and doing IPOs and doing deals and working under tight timelines and, you know, a lot of the things that how work was at that point. And then, of course, my daughter was born in England and uh, tech bust had come and we decided that we wanted to settle down and give roots for our daughter to grow, etc. So we moved back to Toronto and I switched from working 80, 90, 100 hours a week as an investment banker to, you know, taking a more sedate pace in wealth management to working only 50 or 60 hours. <laughs> I was going to say. And so, uh, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really got to work with clients. It was about relationships. So I led and built teams for three different large firms in looking after people's wealth. And as you say, part of it is I was able to bring perspective from the investment banking world because the way that we worked with institutional clients, I was able to bring that kind of rigor and thinking into the retail or the high net worth space. And we became very successful. We were number one ranked in our segment for a number of years. Then I went to a different firm where we rethought the way that what exactly are people looking for? 
when they go to financial advice. And the aha that I had was that people really don't care about beating the benchmark, even though that's what they're told. What they really care about is answering the question, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to have the money that I need when I need it to buy a house, to retire, to put my kids through college, what have you, et cetera? And so we ended up designing a, a business and a platform that was going to answer exactly that question. And so we were the first to do it. And I think we had a lot of success in doing that. But that also got me interested. And I went to go do a doctorate in behavioral science. So the idea about how do we think about and make decisions I did that and I wrote a couple of books on decision-making in, in the investment world or in our personal and professional life. And I think a lot of what I'm interested in right now, Rebecca, a lot of my work is this idea of we are living in a world of change, okay? How can we use the tools that you know I picked up from behavioral science, for example, to understand this world and take action? We don't have the option of not doing anything. We have to do something. But how do we choose what to do and do it in a way that is going to maximize our likelihood of success? If you've been let go from a job, if you're dealing with a pandemic, if you're dealing with a personal or professional setback, how do you assess the world objectively? How do you act prudently? How do you adapt flexibly in order to kind of continue to find a path to success despite the fact that the path may be hidden? So I, I do a lot of speaking work. I you know do coaching and consulting on that, and along the themes of our discussion, you know, like uh, my next area of research is really going to be, you know, how do we define success, and does that definition change as we age? Do we have the right tools to measure success in each of those ages and dimensions, etc.? And I say that part of the fascination for me on that is because I think I'm the living proof. I'm going through this myself. I was going to say the best work say, is what you're experiencing in the moment. That's you know, right. <laughs> like I'm blessed that I think that I have success in the traditional sense in many areas, et cetera. But that doesn't stop me from questioning myself at this stage. Is this all? What is it that I should really be looking to do with my life? You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm still trying to answer that question. Me too. Me too. I think these were always sort of, I guess, strands that were kind of, you know, poking around. And I think for me, they're kind of been pulled together and, and it's a new year. So I think part of it is that the message that I think I'm focusing on and delivering is, look, we're entering a period of uncertainty. I mean, it's accelerating. It's There's always been uncertainty, mm -hmm. but with the yeah, you know complexity here. with yeah. AI, it, it's taking off. There's a lot of parallels I see to your work, you know, write your own story. And I think the idea is that, look, we don't have the luxury of saying the world is moving too fast. I want to get off. You know, we have to figure out how we're going to interact with that world. Yeah. And so part of where I think, I guess my passion, where I want the direction to go, and I don't know what shape or form, exactly the channels, et cetera, but the writing work and the speaking work is really talking about, okay, what tools can you use to kind of sit there and say, make better sense of this world to kind of take action in a way that you can't control the world, but you can control your actions. So how do you control the actions to get to move forward in the best way possible, right? Okay. I just have to pause on that one because I love the connectivity. Since we talked, I've been thinking a lot about how I can describe 
what I'm attempting to write about in this next book. And what I've landed on is the firmly held belief that I have and have tested it out with many people to the degree that I'm confident in it is we can change the world by changing the work. And you may not be bought into your ability to change the whole world, but you certainly Mm -hmm. can look at changing your tiny piece Mm -hmm. of the world Mm -hmm. because making money ought to feel better. And that's it. Like, why can't we use work as the catalyst for change in society and humanity instead of work is causing us the pain of burnout. Work is causing this, like the problem and the answer for too long. And this is really setting up the episode as well. The problem and the answer for too long has been out there. So I got to prove myself and work harder or the root causes of burnout. And so that was the industrial age message and model was prove yourself to something or someone out there in order to derive a sense of worth and success and satisfaction. Well, the problem with that is it undermines and violates all of our nervous system human needs of not only physical health, but also human motivation. Human motivation is autonomy and mastery and purpose from Daniel Pink's work. It is saying... I derive joy from knowing what I'm doing matters. So, and, you know, Daniel Pink, I mean, you know, Abraham Maslow, the whole hierarchy of needs. So part of what I was going to pick your brains on is like one of the things that did like a commencement address and everything else, et cetera. So what's going on in my head, my current midlife crisis, I think it ties into a lot of your pieces here. Our definition of success changing and should be changing and redefining. And our metrics, the problem, part of the challenge that we have, particularly in North American society, is that we lacking the tools to measure properly what we mean by success. Okay. And there is a, a, a saying that I love, which is that we need to learn to measure what we value rather than valuing what we can measure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that the idea is that we have given work the place that it's had. And I love your characterization because I agree with that post-industrial era characterization. We've given it that because it is a very easy way of measuring it. We may not like it. We may not agree it. We may not like that our bosses give us this valuation at the end of the year, the performance review or the bonus that they give us. We probably disagree with it. But that is a metric that we bought into and we've given it into. And so when we decide that we want to do something different, okay, and it's not about money or not making money, et cetera, but when we decide that we want something else out of our lives, this purpose, meaning, et cetera, it's because we've not learned, we're not getting value that we want to get out of this facet of our life. And it may be that it isn't there, but it also may be that we're not how to measure or focus on you know what we're looking to do there's a lot of research that's been done about janitors at hospitals okay if you go and ask the janitors what you're doing the one that sits there and says i'm mopping the floor is miserable the one that says that i am creating an environment you know for the patients and their families that are very special you know you can get meaning if you're reframing it and you're redefining the metrics that you're looking for etc 
I know this is a challenge for me. Like, you know, we were bombarded and inundated with social media and the curation and the likes and the follows and everything else. We're not being taught as the right way to measure and look at these things, which I think might give us better value and a better sense of, okay, making money is okay. Running a business is okay. Being a corporate soldier is okay. If you can reframe or redesign or rethink of it this way. And giving yourself the freedom of choice that if that structure, corporate structure is no longer serving your human needs, that it is your right, it is your it is the expectation that you take your gifts and talents elsewhere so that you can find a place where you can feel that sense of satisfaction and value. Because the idea that don't quit the company owes you something in terms of satisfying your life. They don't. And so that's another part of it. Yes, I think measuring things that are, you know, the way I frame it up is the business controls, measures, and optimize. That's where all that measurement comes through. And humans are personal, emotional, and social. So what I'm hearing you say is the missing element is we've become so accustomed to measurement but we don't have a mechanism to measure the personal, emotional, and social. And so it gets less of our attention. But if we had something that helped us measure that, we would give it more weight. Yeah. More weight. Because I say that we measure the business side with time and money. That's easy. The personal side is measured with feelings. And there yeah. has been very few points of our maturation after about age five, when you go to school, that honors your feelings. Because you, your feelings were honored until you got to school, and now they're right. inconvenient. And now it's a pain in the teacher's butt that you're different than everybody else, right? And so we, our most formative years are not spent honoring, well, how does that feel? What do you think you should do? Why does that matter to you? And if we don't nurture that earlier, this next 20 years is going to be tough because we as parents are doing it. We're doing it differently, right? But we didn't even get a jump start on it, right? We didn't start at age five. For you and I, we started at age, what, 16, 17 when we started having this kind of awakening of our lives. But I think over the next 25, 30 years, we're going to see parenting shift so dramatically that it's going to close that gap, that parents are going to be asking for career situations. Well, how does it feel when you take that class? Or how does it feel when you do that work? Instead of make sure you can go make a living and get good benefits, because that's the key to success. Look, I think there's an element, you know, like, and I think the economic situation is causing that juxtaposition and that tension, right? I mean, it, you do need to earn a living, you do need to get benefits, etc. There's no way uh, around that. But I think something that you said, which I think is pretty powerful, and I would add to that, is that, okay, you do have a right to sit there and say, okay, I'm doing something beyond a paycheck that matters to me. Maybe the nuance I'd add to that is, and perhaps this is part of the retraining or the reframing that we need in society, is we've given that meaning to work over the last 50, 60 years. Do we need that meaning? 100%. Does it have to come from work? Not necessarily. Like, I mean, if you are ready to kind of sit there and say, you know what, this is a job, it pays the bills, it puts a roof over my head, it gives me the benefits. But, you know, this meaning, this sense of belonging, it's going to come from church, it's going to come from synagogue, it's going to come from community groups that I belong to, etc. 
there's nothing wrong with that. I think to some extent that work, you know, this is a Protestant work ethic or whatever you want to put this work in and of itself is going to fill all of these needs, right? And in some cases it might, but I would say in the majority of cases, all of us, it's not. I tell my daughter, I tell people that I mentor, like, look, at the end of the day, this perception that you're going to be enthused and enthusiastic and jump out of bed and 100% of your days at work, you're going to be like, you know, this is fantastic. That's never going to happen. It never is. You're lucky. You have to change our expectations and our assessments of this, right? I would think for the most of us, if we have 60% of our times at work that we're happy or that we feel, you know, motivated and everything else, that's fantastic. Because there is no job, no matter what you do, you know, the doctor that is saving lives that we see on television that we look and think that's meaningful and purposeful work. I know enough doctors that they're frustrated. They have the highest like degree of burnout. Believe. Across all industries. Correct. It's not the job. It's our expectations of the job to some extent. You just triggered a memory of mine that was the catalyst for much of this work that I'm doing today. And that was me standing at the kitchen counter in my beautiful, huge home on a 23-acre estate that I had worked my ass off to provide. And I'm standing at the kitchen counter with my son, who at the time was about 14. I'm already frenetic at 8 a.m. He's waiting for his ride to school and I'm shuffling papers on the counter and I just did this like deep sigh. I looked over at him. He's been an old soul since he came out of the womb. He's just that kind of kid. <laughs> it's a good thing he's a songwriter because he uses his gifts well in that way. But he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, mom, this is going to make me tear up. I just want you to know that I appreciate so much of everything that we have. And I know how hard you've worked for us to live in a place like this and for us to get to do the things that we do and vacations. And I'm appreciative. Mm. He said, but I've been watching you and I just don't think I want to work that hard and sacrifice what I've seen you sacrifice with being stressed and always just people always asking you for things. He said, I don't know if I want that. And I got in my car and number one, you're just like grateful that you have a kid that sees the world in, in that holistic way. But I couldn't stop thinking about that moment. And it got me thinking about why would I have to sacrifice a sense of well-being for prosperity? Why is it that my child thinks I have to choose one over the other? My Bible says that's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't have to, I don't have to choose one to get the right. other. And so I never stop thinking about that of I have to figure out a way that prosperity, which actually then learned means being well, living well. It, it's not just about financial prosperity, but there has to be this marriage of a beautiful life and a fruitful, prosperous life that I shouldn't have to sacrifice my well-being to have the financial side. No, look, I think that's a great example. And I think prosperity, success, I like prosperity better. But like I would argue for both of those, we have a very one-dimensional definition of it. And it's a multi-dimensional construct, right? I mean, I think that, you know, to your point, what's the point of having all the money in the world if you don't have the time to enjoy it? What's the point of having all the money in the world if you don't have good health? What's the point of having all the money in the world 
if you don't have loved ones that you can share it with or people that you can share it with. So I think to your point, this is a much overused term, but I think we're coming to a more holistic definition of prosperity and success. And I think that, you know, people like your son, I think the younger generation, for a lot of reasons, a lot of it is due to you and I and our generation where we had this work first mindset, you know, that we were raised to do it. Our kids have seen the toll that that takes. And I think for them, I think it's a combination of things. It is the toll that they've seen. They don't like this kind of imbalance. I think there is an argument to be said that the, you know, call it the American dream or the Canadian dream is no longer a reality or achievable for most people. Okay. And that is the, you know, however you want to term it, the house, the two cars, you know, what have you, et cetera. And People are coming to grips with that. And, and there is a sense for me, having lived around the world, that this is not, you know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, like, you know, in Canada, as in the US, I think there's an aspiration that you, everybody, you know, at a certain age, you have to buy your house, you have to have a house, you have to have this, et cetera. And the fact that it's becoming unaffordable is, is a crisis for most people until you sit there and realize in places, including in the U.S., okay, in New York, you know, people aren't buying houses if they're living in Manhattan, okay, or in London or in Frankfurt or in Paris or in all of these places, et cetera. People have a very good life and, you know, without a backyard, there's lots of parks and other ways that they can. So that there's a bit of a, I think, a crisis of confidence, but I think if it's done right, for me, when you talk about future work, that's what it brings is that we have an opportunity to redefine that paradigm, to sit there and say what really matters. And I think that's, if we do it right, I think it's better for the individual, but for sure, better for individuals is going to translate to better for society as a whole. And even the multi-generational family environment that many countries, many cultures embrace many generations living together, which makes it far more affordable if we're all living in the same house, right? So my son didn't move out until this past year. He was 24 and he felt guilty and bad. Now, of course, you know, he was moving out right when COVID hit. So it that thwarted all of that plan, mm -hmm. but he was feeling really guilty and bad about it. And I said, Why? Because cultural expectations have told you that you were supposed to be gone by now. Like, since <laughs> when do you care about that? Many countries and cultures believe that multi-generations should live together to support one another. And I just think we're in an age where we're going to be forced to rethink a lot of the standards of success that we've had. I totally agree. And I think you make an interesting point. It's not just culture. It's even our own culture. Like 60 years ago or older, like our own culture uh, was multi-generational, et cetera. It's, it's a very much of a post-war phenomena that this, the manifestation of the American dream or the Canadian dream, as we've seen it, has taken this version. hundred years ago, it was different. And I think there's a danger in being caught. Tradition is good. Tradition doesn't mean that you're stuck in your ways. It's just that you honor the past while adapting to the future, et cetera, right? There's some traditions that some parts of our family are dying to hide all to hold on to and others that want to let it go immediately. And 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 you have yeah. to you have to wrestle that. Yep. I had a boss, he put it beautifully. He said that we have to speak respectfully about the past, realistically about the present, 
and optimistically about the future. And I think it would be great for our society if we can teach our kids that kind of mindset to have that, you know, like we need to be realistic about the future. We need to be respectful about the past and we need to look for the opportunity in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do we take what we've learned and adapt it to the situation that we are in today to make for ourselves a better future. If that means that we need to redefine the work paradigm that has existed for 100 years to take account of what the, the reality is, then we should. There is no sacred cows in this respect. So let's take that. I love that frame of past, present, and future because my belief is that the future of work will be created. It will be the people who will succeed as leaders in the future of work come from a creation mindset. They don't feel the need to reorganize things of the past. And what I see is a lot of leaders and managers with the cry of back to office, back to the way things used to be, which is the neuroscience of that is the patterns of the past are what feel safe, even if they're not. That's why people stay in abusive relationships, right? Because the fear of the unknown and the uncertainty, as you said, when we first started is harder than let's go back and just refresh or recycle the past. And so if the future of work is to be created, that we're not going to go back and just reorganize the past, how do we do it? Like from you have an immense amount of global experience and corporate experience and big industries. Like you've been in the trenches of work, right? If we're creating something different than has existed before, how do we do it? Like if you were going to walk into a leader today and say, okay, you're going to create this business and we're going to create it for the needs of the things that we've been talking about for us as humans and to also have a a company that is profitable, that is sustainable, all the things we care about from a business perspective. What are some of the how-tos or I don't even know how to explain it because we are creating it, but what would you say to somebody that's starting a business today that's going to be successful in the future? You know, there's a saying, generals are always fighting the last war point about that is that, you know, if you're ready for the future, you have to kind of not be stuck in the past. So I think maybe I can start the answer because it's only a start with maybe an observation that, that I think that there are, you know, probably be more, but there are three trends that I see that is here and different than the past that we need to accept as being here. So the first is, I think that hybrid is here to stay. So digitization, and especially with the COVID pandemic, we've seen industries and jobs that, you know, are always thought that you couldn't do remotely are being done remotely. Okay. Whether it's medical care, I was in the finance world, you know, you're seeing investments, financial advisors or traders that are being able to do work remotely, which I would have said in 2019, everybody, every expert said that's not possible. And yet we found it happening in 21, 22, and we will see it. Do I think it's going to be fully remote? No, because I think there are reasons to be in the office, et cetera. But I think digitization, the rising cost of housing, the rising cost of commercial office space, I think transportation costs, I think these are all factors to why hybrid, I think, is here to stay. So that's factor number one. Factor number two, I think the social compact or contract has changed. Okay, so there is no longer lifetime employment. There hasn't been for a long time. So the contract has become, the employment contract has become transactional. 
So now workers are looking at work as one part of their life, only one part. So advancing in their career no longer guarantees the good life, what we used to call the good life, being able to buy a house, good schools, retire, all of those. There's no guarantee. So people aren't willing to delay their gratification. When I say people, I mean employees are not willing to delay their gratification for somewhere, something down the road. So employers are going to need to appeal to this holistic employee, support the wellness element of it, the purpose and economic interest. And I think it's not going to be foosball tables, jelly beans, and beanbag chairs anymore. I think that's not going to cut it if they want to attract and keep great talent. And then I'll make factor three, and I'll come back to a couple of points. Factor three is the changing demographic and work commitments mindset, okay? like So we're getting an older workforce. We're living longer. Most of us now can probably look forward to living probably 20 years or more after our retirement date, our yeah. official retirement date in 65. 30 years ago, that wasn't the case, okay? I would say almost every generation, not just the millennials or the younger ones, your daughter or my daughter, they don't want to work 60 hours a week. Nobody wants to work 60 hours a week, okay? So, and the reality is that firms need the knowledge and experience of the older workers. We talked about the workers are living longer, but in that retirement or their older age, they want to be engaged, they want to be occupied, and they want to be rewarded in these later years. So I think we need to rethink retirement and provide different models, part-time, advisory, et cetera. An academic I know said, retirement should no longer be an off-ramp. It should be an off-ramp, but not a cliff, okay? That you suddenly stop at 65 and you're done, okay? Because we've spent 30 plus years, most of us working 40 plus hours. And this work has been our social life, our meaning, our, our purpose. purpose. Yeah. You know, all of that, we can't replace it. But I think all of these factors are things that I would say an employer looking to be successful in the future needs to think about and accommodate as they go forward. And one thing I think initial thing that I think that they should do is to redefine what it means to be productive, okay? So it's no longer time and hours spent or dollars, money saved or sales made, particularly in a knowledge worker type of economy. I think, I don't know that I have the answer as to what that metric should be, but it's got to be better than time spent in the office, et cetera. Like, I mean, or in which case I think the lot of the, the pushback about spending an hour each way to commute into the office, is that really productive? Right. I think that's a very valid point. Right. If that's the way we're measuring productivity, et cetera. So I think this idea of clocking in and clocking out is a very industrial era metric that I think should not apply in the 21st century and certainly not in the industries of the future. I agree wholeheartedly. The way that I'm asking my clients to measure is what I call VRI, is to know your value and treat your value, which are your gifts, your talents, your experiences, treat it as an asset, just like you would a financial asset that you own. When you own a financial asset, you protect it. You want it to grow. You don't want anybody to come take it away. And so if you take your value into work every day, look for ways to make it relevant make it matter. 
how are you going to use your asset for the greatest return? And then the impact is measured both in time and money. You're looking for business impact. And it's up to you as an employee at any level of the organization to know the money-making model of the organization so you know how do you feel at work. How are you helping others feel safe and affirmed at work? That our role as humans is the bottom line, but it's also the human factor to make people feel safe and whole in your daily interactions, not because the company has a foosball table and big cookies at lunch, right? I love what you're saying, and I agree wholeheartedly. The follow-up question is, what are going to be the biggest barriers or challenges that leaders are going to experience as they try to make this shift? One thing I've heard from talking to executives, et cetera, is that in some cases, the resistance in going back to the office isn't coming from the younger employees. It's actually coming from senior executives and managers who don't want to come into the office. You know, they've gotten used to being at home and the flexibility that they've got. They're almost in the sense like, I've done my time. I don't need to come in anymore. It's a good idea, but a good idea for the up and comers, et cetera. I think part of it is culture is going to be important. That is a barrier to kind of change the culture and the mindset. But I also think how we define work and the mindset has to change. So one bugbear for me has always been in the corporate world. I think that meetings have taken a life on their own. Everything is a meeting and they're long and you're rehashing the same things over and over again. People don't come to it. Like, what is the purpose of a meeting? Uh, And I don't think it's clearly defined. If the purpose of a meeting is to make a decision, which is what I think it should be, then great. Then make sure that people are aware of that. Make sure that they've done the work beforehand to read the background materials, et cetera. Be ready to discuss issues and then take a decision at that point. But I would say 90% of meetings that I've been at over my life, you know, it it wasn't that. I think that they could have been cut in half in terms of the amount of time in the meetings because people, there wasn't a clear agenda. There wasn't a clear purpose. There wasn't a clear what do we want as a result of this meeting going in. And as a result, people didn't come prepared and to discuss. So we, you know, we would go through the deck that they should have gone through beforehand. So I think if you're looking to have people come into the office in a hybrid environment because there's collaboration, because there is going to be meetings to be there. I think you need to define what those meetings are. Otherwise, I think people are going to be frustrated that they're coming in an hour, you know, driving to come in for a meeting and what which could have been done remotely. I think one of the other barriers that we need to think about is, and I think this is a jigsaw puzzle. I think there is a role for public policy to play. I think there's a role for employers to play. And I think there's a role for employees to play. I think that we need to define what exactly is work and should work be meaningful? Yes, in an ideal world. Is it the employer's sole obligation to make the work meaningful? Or is that a shared responsibility between the employer and the employee? I would argue that it's a shared responsibility so that there has to be an involvement and a re-education or a reframing, if you will, of that shared responsibility. Things like pension legislation that we've got right now, there is no flexibility in most pension regimes for this off-ramp that I was talking about of retirement, of creating a mechanism whereby we can keep older workers 
engaged on a part-time type of basis, et cetera. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. You know, we have to remove the stigma. Like, okay, so if you're an older executive, you know, that you may want to work, okay? You may want to continue to work, but you might've been leading a team of 60 people, okay? If you want to work three days a week, it might not be possible for you to continue to lead a team of 60 people. I think it's got to be okay for the employer and the employee that the, the, the nature of their role has changed without the value that they're adding or the importance that they're adding changing. And so it's no longer going to be how big is your team, but can you provide a knowledge transfer? Can you mentor and uh, nurture that next generation of leaders to take over? And you might be able to do that on a two days a week or a three days a week type of basis. Okay. So that brings up an experience I had just before the holiday. I was visiting with a business owner. They own a Christmas tree farm. And I'm not talking a small operation. I'm talking massive. And it is a family business. It's grown to the point that they need consultants in to come help them manage the whole dynamic that big. We were talking about some of some of this, about what happens as you kind of age out of some of the work that you've been doing. And they told me this story about this gentleman who had come to the tree farm with his family to get a Christmas tree and just had kind of fallen in love with the whole concept and being there and struck up a conversation with the owner of the farm, just happened to run into each other. And he said, tell me about this business. Well, he was, had recently retired. He lived really close to the farm and had a ton of skills that would be helpful in this business. And he said, hey, can I come and volunteer? Can I come and volunteer here? And he said, well, what do you just met this guy, right? He said, well, what do you mean? He's like, I know how to drive a tractor. I know how to fix fence. I know how to like, I got to believe that there's things around here that I do. I can do. And the owner said, well, we'd want to pay you. He said, no, 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 no. I I just want to come volunteer. And he said, okay. So he starts doing this. This guy shows up every day with his lunch pail, like he's going to work. And he stays there for five, six, seven, eight, sometimes eight hours and refuses to be paid. And he's been there for like 10 years, something crazy, the number of years. Seriously. Wow. And every time they, you know, now he's kind of one of the family, obviously. And what they do, they felt guilty, like they were taking advantage of him. He has a charity that he cares a lot about that this family donates a significant amount of money every year to his favorite charity. And this man is so happy and has such great purpose because he has a place that he can go and serve Mm -hmm. every day. So what you're talking about is if we could leave this opportunity open for people not to have the cliff of retirement, but have a way that they could continue to come into the organization and serve, it satisfies a huge human need for them. To expand on that, what your point is, I think it also creates opportunities for the employer. I mean, we have a labor shortage right now that we're finding that we can't hire skilled talent with the experience that we're looking for. But the the biggest resource for most employers is sitting right there. It's their existing workforce, their older employees, et cetera. But we haven't made it okay. We haven't made it safe for this conversation to occur five years, 10 years before retirement to come boss to say to employee, hey, 
Rebecca, like we really value what you're doing for this company, et cetera. We think you have a lot to add. We'd like for us to have, you know, no pressure. If you want to retire at 65, great. But we want to maybe explore some other alternative models that might work for you, but it would certainly work for us, right? And certainly I think it's not, I would say that most employees feel very reluctant or vulnerable to kind of have that conversation with their employers. So I think, I don't know, maybe I, I would say there's, if you talk about barriers and how we might overcome them, I would say part of it is I see some work being done on this space, you know, between financial institutions, financial advisors, specialists, retirement coaches, et cetera. I think that more of that has to happen because I think the alternative is that it's a problem in every level. Number one, I think society is losing talent um, and work potential. I think employers are losing experience and knowledge and productivity. Increasingly, I think people are going to realize that this idea of retirement is changing. You know, it's different than the 50 years ago, if you lived three, four, five years after retirement. If you're living 20, 25, 30 years after retirement, I don't care how much of a golf player you are or a golfer you are or how much you love to travel. I, I guarantee you that after six months of traveling out of a suitcase or golfing five days a week, there comes a time for 90% of people that say, you know what, I need something different. I need to do something that is more meaningful, et cetera. And I think we haven't solved it yet. Your example of this gentleman, I think is perfect. And it's great that happened. That's serendipity. But should we not do something to make sure it. that exactly that that becomes not a matter of luck and circumstance, but that we design it into the system? Yeah. And there's science shows that the more you have purpose in your life, the more it contributes to your longevity. You live a much healthier, longer life. I know Correct. for my grandfather that when he could no longer farm actively, his health started to decline because mm -hmm. his purpose was gone. Less then it had been and, yep. and somebody else was out doing the work that he loved to do. So I think you're on to something big there about making the construct of business different in the future that allows for these mature, older employees to stay actively engaged in a contract of some sort that you create based on the circumstance that we've, we've got this bias that it has to be like all or nothing. I think that is ridiculous. I love that point. I think that this idea of being flexible, like in wealth management, which is my background, there was a particularly with multi-generational wealth, you know, in dealing with families, there is this idea of fairness, fair versus equal. You know, you've got two kids. I only have the ones. So I don't have this issue, but I think we're tempted to treat our children equally, where I think the right way is that we need to treat them fairly. And so meaning that if your son is into sports, you might be paying for sports camps, et cetera, for your son. But if your daughter is into art, the fact that you're not sending her to sports camp, you might send her to an arts camp and that's fair, but it's not equal. And I think the problem with fair versus equal is that it requires a little bit more nuance, a little bit more subjectivity, a little bit more work and effort. But I think that, and I think this is the challenge in a litigious society, et cetera. But employers, I think we need to find a way that employers can treat their employees fairly yeah. 
without necessarily equally. And I think this is the point that you're making, which I, I love, it resonates with me, is that flexibility that you treat each individual circumstance slightly differently because the demands are slightly different. And it does take more diligence. And I would simplify it by saying it's about connection versus control. And control says, here are the rules. Here's the way we do it. Everybody just pay attention to the rules. Connection mm -hmm. requires people to be eyeball to eyeball, heartbeat to heartbeat. And the belief is that it's less efficient, but it's far more effective. I'm just going to create this construct called the business and the rules of the business. And to your point, employees and employers in the future will have to have more connection than control in order to build these nuances for different situations. I think you're 100% right. It's the connection that is important. I think the challenge with the command and control type of economy, and if you take it to the extreme, as we saw in the Soviet Union, et cetera, which was a command and control economy, I think you create a cottage industry and in trying to figure out ways around it, right? Instead of, so it doesn't serve the purpose anyways. But I think to your point, building that connection, I think it is what the employee of the future is looking for. It's what we were talking about earlier on, you know, that sense of meaning, sense of purpose, sense of social kind of interaction, et cetera. And I think it's going to come from changing the nature of the relationship between employer and employee. I think that just sums it up. And the leaders that are interested in that kind of creation and connection will thrive. And the leaders who are more interested in efficiency and control and ego and power are going to really struggle. I think that's a great way of putting it. I think we're starting to see it. I think that's going to only snowball as people get to vote with their feet in terms of what they want, et cetera. I think the great resignation that we saw before the recession started coming in, I think was an indication of that. I think that people are looking for something more and expecting something more out of the, the time and effort that they put in at work. Yeah. The definition of burnout is a fatigue that comes from the devotion to something that did not produce the expected reward. So you, you devoted yourself to this career or this company, whatever it is, and it did not produce what you expected it to produce. Mm -hmm. And the expected reward has changed and we're never going back to great pay and benefits and the things of the past that used to be sought out as being the reward. The expected reward is quality of life, its purpose, its prosperity and its holistic sense of wellness and well-being in addition to being financially able to provide for yourself. And that's going to require us to change some things. And I'm here for it. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy. Look, I think <laughs> on your point, I would say, like, I think that the real reality is that promotions and pay raises are not keeping up remotely with the expectations of people. Now, we can argue whether the expectations are, you know, reasonable or not. But the reality is that however you slice it, there is a disconnect between, I think, what people's expectations of pay raises and promotions are and what's happening. So we have to have a, a redefinition of what is that work construct look like? What is the meaning that you're going to get? And I think we have to do it in, in a different way. And I think that you highlighted some of this. I think it brings to mind what the, uh, Einstein's famous quote, that we can't solve our problems with the same thinking that we use when we got when we created them to begin with. And if we come there and sit there and apply an industrial era 
idea of what work looks like in terms of time and productivity in the office, et cetera, and, and apply it blindly without taking into account the changing environment in which we are operating under. I think it's not going to work well for anyone, but least of all employers and firms that are looking to you know, be around for the next 50, 100 years. So I'm going to put a cap on this episode with a call to action to leaders that one of the best uses of their time and effort in 2024 is likely to get away from the business and spend some quiet time in reflection, thinking about things outside of what they've done in the past and let their imagination and creativity run with what are the needs for the future and create the space for that because it's not going to happen. That kind of creative thinking is not going to happen in the throes of the day-to-day of running a business. You're going to need to get away and take some time to reflect and think about what might be required in the future. I love that. Work on the business, not just in the business. I think that's great. I'm learning that it's more fun to enjoy the quest and the journey, which sounds very trite and Instagram quote-ish, but if you embrace it for the truth that it is, it's a beautiful thing. I totally agree. I have to be honest to say I don't remember to do that because it's we're so wired to look ahead and say, where is this taking me? And it doesn't need to take you anywhere. Just enjoy the moment. I would say the one other thing maybe I would leave you and your listeners with is that I've done a lot of mountain climbing. And one of the lessons that I like from mountain climbing is it's about small wins, okay? And it's about zigzag. To climb to the top of Kilimanjaro, It's you don't go straight up the mountain. You have to switch back up and down. And it's you're still going forward. You're still going up. But sometimes you have to go down in order to climb up. And it's okay because that's the way you're going to make it. And what I like about that and what I try to share in my work is that's kind of a real-life example and a non-work-related example that success isn't a straight line. It is a zigzag. and There are times that you take a step back in order to go forward you know, with more energy and more strength than you might have done otherwise, etc. But enjoy the moment. Enjoy the journey, as you say. I love that. How can we stay connected with you? You're working on the next book. You're doing some consulting. If somebody wants to reach out and maybe even hire you to do some coaching or consulting or just have great conversations like this, what's the easiest way that people can get a hold of you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I don't think there's too many other Sam Severajans on there. So <laughs> I think that, that should be an easy one. They can also check me out on my website, www.samsevarajan.com. A lot of my writings, my books, I write, I have a newsletter and I've got a current podcast on there. They can find it all there. And I'd love to hear from your listeners. Thank you. I'm so glad we met. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode. I would love it if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. And then you can go to RebeccaFleetwoodHessian.com and join the Badass Women's Council. And if you really want to take a deeper dive, join the movement of a thousand thriving women. There's amazing Thrive tools there for you today. Love you, mean it. I'm not coming down. 
Hey, y'all. Fun fact. If you like the music for the podcast, that is actually my son, Cameron Hessian. And I would love it if you would go to Spotify and iTunes and follow him and download some of his other music. My personal favorite is TV Land.